When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Shrike Talk. By any measure, 1936 was a miserable moment in world history, a time of economic disaster, the Great Depression, which created global chaos and bloodshed. It was a year of calamity everywhere. In 1936, Franco starts the Spanish Civil War. Japan invades China. Mussolini's Italy conquers Ethiopia and Addis Ababa. Stalin begins the Great Purge. Hitler enforces the Nuremberg Laws and occupies the Rhineland. The Rome-Berlin Axis forms. World War II is coming. In America, the Depression is in its seventh year. One-third of the population is living below the poverty line. 9,000 American banks have failed. The stock market has lost 89% of its value. In Cleveland, unemployment is at 50%. In Toledo, it's at 80%. Entire industries have shuttered. The Dust Bowl devastates the center of the country. 750,000 family farms are lost. During the Depression, 1.5 million American fathers abandoned their families, and the U.S. has the highest homicide rate in the civilized world. In 1936, in America, crooks outnumber carpenters by 4 to 1. They outnumber doctors by 20 to 1. Conditions for those who have jobs are horrible. At U.S. Steel alone in 1936, workers suffer 22,845 workplace casualties. And so there are strikes. That year, there are 22,368 strikes in America. There are also company-paid strike breakers and a lot of violence. Foremen in coal mines begin carrying machine guns. America is at war with itself. Amid the chaos, extremism thrives, as it always does. The German-American Bund explodes in popularity. Seven million Americans join the Communist Party. In 1936, stress is recognized for the first time as a medical condition. The nation is in free fall. Obviously, a very good time for Hollywood studios to lay off workers, close their gates, and wait it out. Which is what they did, except they didn't. Instead, Hollywood placed a bet on itself. It hired more workers and increased production. In 1936, one single year, Hollywood produced 1,709 movies. I'll say that number again. 1,709 movies, or 32 movies per week in one year. And how did America respond to that glut of content? Well, that year, Americans bought 85 million movie tickets every week. Turns out the nation wanted a solution to its despair and great storytelling was it. And do you know what happened to the studio owners, the movie moguls who had placed that bet and backed those movies? Here's a hint. In 1936, 19 of the 25 highest paid executives in all of America were movie moguls. They had counted on artists to make magic, and those artists had come through. And the result was not just profit, it was global change. Those movies became America's face to the world. They informed how the world viewed this country and the American dream and democracy itself. 
that filmic fantasy, Andy Hardy, Shirley Temple, surely did not tell the whole truth about America. But just as surely, it made America a beacon of hope. And it made democracy something the people of Europe were willing to fight and die for when that horrible war began in 1939. The Dream Factory, our beloved business, did that. We helped undermine and destroy fascism. Seems important to remember that in this moment, as the American radical right continues to embrace authoritarianism while deifying a guy who is hopping from indictment to indictment in a diaper. Our country needs us to be reflecting it back to itself right now. Instead, we're divided, and the stories are being told by someone else. Making a movie or a TV show is difficult. It requires faith and trust. When Hollywood did it 1,709 times in a single year, that required a bit more. But moguls took the leap, and everybody prospered. When trust is present, our town thrives. When it's absent, people retreat into tribal corners, and strikes happen. We're in the midst of two of them now. The positions of writers, actors, teamsters, showrunners, reporters, economists, and computer coders, as well as my own, have been aired on this show for 16 weeks. But because I truly want this to be a town hall, I keep asking executives to join me and share some of the challenges the studios and networks are facing. I'm hoping one of them will trust me enough to say yes, because like it or not, we need one another as much as we did in 1936. Studios need artists and artists need studios. We need to trust one another and both sides need to be worthy of that trust. That's how 1,709 movies happen in a single year. It's how peak TV happened. It's how America endures hard times and celebrates good ones. It's how the world sees us at our best and therefore trusts us. If we let it falter, if we let a broken and outdated negotiating process kill it, the result may not be 1936, but it will certainly be Great Depression. Joining me now to help prevent that are two industry giants. Between them, they have made, I don't know, a zillion movies and changed the face of the business. Please welcome Gail Ann Hurd and Glenn Bassner. Well, folks, thank you for coming. I'm so thrilled to have you here. And I thought you guys would both be great guests to come on and talk about how the Hollywood ecosystem worked at its best when trust seemed like it was more present, and what's happened to it in the last five years, and then hopefully what we can do about it. Gail, I want to start with you. You started in features, made some giant ones, then went into TV, made giant ones there too. What do you think is changing in the business in the last five years? And do you think it can be fixed? Well, I I, I think that we are in an age of activist shareholders. I think that... Corporations are now vertically integrated, which was prohibited by the consent decrees. Um, And there are fewer studios, fewer networks. And we simply don't have the options that we used to have. And it is especially affecting independent cinema. And as a result, we are in a much worse position than we were when I began, or any of us currently working in the entertainment business have experienced since since it essentially began. Glenn, do you see it the same way? I do, but I would add that independent independent film, which is really where I operate, sort of straddling the industry and then outside the industry or the major companies, it's always been impossible and felt impossible. 
And I think this is just a, a, a heightened moment where we're all understanding that. But I also remain optimistic. And I think there's always solutions to these challenges. And the biggest thing that needs to happen in this current strike negotiation is that over the last three to five years, there's been so much change that's happened in the way that films are shown to people around the world and the way that they're exploited, that we have to catch up to this. And that's, I think, at the core of what this negotiation is. And for me, when I look backwards where things have been successful, it's really been about a design where everyone could align their interest as closely as possible. So that when we go through this creative process, um, it's not just we're all talking about making the same great film. We're also talking about what success looks like economically and from a distribution and business perspective for that individual film. And with the lack of transparency in how films are being exploited successfully or otherwise, it's really hard to achieve that alignment of interests. There's always been a little bit of hide the ball, but you got the sense then that the studio knew what the value of a piece of material was. It just didn't want to say what the value was. Now I'm having a hard time determining what the value is. In other words, if you make something for Netflix and it goes on the server for 10 years, how do you put a dollar figure on what it's worth? And therefore, how do people share in that? For me, absolutely, it does. And I would also argue it's not in anybody's long-term interest to withhold that type of information because for those of us who are working at the very beginning of creating a feature film or a television series, the more information we have on what is being successful or not, the better we can infuse that into the new creative things that we're working on so that we can have better delivery for the buyers of these eventual films and television shows. And it's not something that we can just do, oh, hey, we have a screenplay and we have a, a director and some cast, so now let's make a few tweaks. I think it has to be done in order to be done really successfully and sustainably at the very beginnings of that process. And so while there was a bit of hide the ball in the past, we at least we had box office information that was accurate. At least we had tracking for how home video sales were, and we had Nielsen ratings for television. So there were some guidelines that we were able to use to formulate what we thought could be successful, both creatively and from a business perspective going forward. My concern is actually the opposite. My concern is that in an era of AI, where AI can theoretically formulate box office or streaming successes, we are going to have less exciting, original, independent productions that aren't sequels, that aren't remakes, that aren't essentially you know, carbon copies of what was successful recently. And the great age of cinema and of television series were always when there was innovation. You brought up the consent decrees earlier, and I want to talk about, one, do too few people own too much and therefore wield too much power? Two, is there a role for the federal government to play in that? Yes and yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we, used, to be a, we used to be a country where monopoly was not good, where Standard Oil was broken up because it became a, a monopoly. 
we are now seeing Silicon Valley essentially say, don't even start a company unless you can become a monopoly. And too many people embrace that. And there is way too much power. There's no question. So a, a couple of things. So, so first of all, yes, I think we need to look at um, we, we need to look at monopolies. Uh, we need to look at um, going back to things that worked very well, like the fairness doctrine, where you couldn't you could not misrepresent news and have fake news. Um, that changed because of cable, and now it has gone on to pollute the public forum that is the internet. So I, I absolutely think that regulation is essential. What we're trying to figure out is, is the system of independent theatrical film distributors enough? Is it strong enough? Do the economics make sense for them going forward to sustain a thriving independent film business? And part of that goes now back to these large companies and where I think regulation can come in to play. Because if you look at a distributor like A24, Neon, Bleecker Street, they may be great theatrical distributors and there may be an audience at the theatrical level for those movies. But if they can't sell their movies to pay TV or streamers at the levels that they currently are, then the whole economic model upends itself and we have to readjust to saying, well, creatively, these may make sense, but we may need to make them for 60% of the cost that we've been making them beforehand. And that's not sustainable uh, in the long term to just keep reducing the cost structure of each film. I absolutely agree with Glenn that there's going to be continued consolidation. If the streaming model adopts essentially what basic cable was, which is that you have to pay for it and then you have to sit through commercials. So there are two revenue streams for uh, streamers. That seems like it's sustainable. It could work. Uh, and then streaming just replaces what basic cable used to be. If ads are going to be an important part of that, doesn't that mean that all streamers would have to be transparent at the very least with their advertisers? To some extent, they'll have to, but it's a question of when they'll have to. Um, so, for instance, if they're, you're making a film for a streamer and it's premiering on that streamer and it's 18 months before they'll put it on their advertising availabilities on their platform, then you may be getting that information, but you'll be getting it much later after you've already contracted and negotiated for those films. So I don't know how that's going to help in the short to medium term us understand what's being more successful on the platforms and how do we share equitably in that success. If you, if you look at the um, platforms right now, if you look at, at Facebook, if you look at Google, um, there have been lawsuits about fake data, about just how many people are actually seeing ads on those platforms. And uh, so I, I, I'm always concerned that, that metrics will not be reliable. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times that I've had to sue for profits on my films. And um, some of my, my most successful films are still not in profit. So uh, if, they're, if they're not sharing that data with us accurately, um, I think they will, they will share unreliable data with advertisers. 
Another question I have about Netflix, a guest on this show said two weeks ago that 50% of American televisions don't have Netflix. So Gail, you're a producer, you produce a show for Netflix. Are you willing to let it sit on a server for 10 years and have no chance of exploiting 50% of the American public? We are living in a world of reduced options and you essentially have to weigh what is the least worst situation that, uh, you know, to, to, to get your projects made, you know, it, at the end of the day, we are at the mercy of the, you know, distribution options available to us as well as the financiers. I think an interesting thing that, um, that people haven't discussed very much is considering how much content Netflix has, they don't currently have a sell on model for so that would make them money that would make us money because that's how we share in ancillary rights and profits um so if if they become so big what are they going to do with all of that content at some point that is going to need to be addressed and i'm surprised that more people aren't talking about that issue valuation for these companies is always based on growth they always need to prove that they're growing in different ways. And now that Wall Street is looking at these companies, instead of saying subscriber growth, they're looking at profitability. Uh, I would guess that at some point, all of the streamers will look to monetize their content that they own um, by selling it on going forward. We're already seeing Warner Brothers Discovery do that because they're going to have to grow their bottom line somehow, and they're going to run out of subscribers to add and price increases to deliver that. The challenge is, how do we, the creative uh, artists and filmmaking teams that are making these films and TV shows, how do we participate? And previously, we haven't negotiated. They've been paying significant amounts of money to buy out that that film or that television show in its entirety. So as they look to sell on, they would actually capture all of that economic benefit without having to share anything other than some residuals that would be agreed upon. And so what we're thinking about is, well, how do we structure our deals for them going forward that wouldn't be a complete buyout for those rights? As their budgets are being squeezed, I think that they'll be more flexible as we go forward. It won't be a moment where there's a light switch flicked and we'll be able to negotiate like we used to with the studios, but you'll start to see some of those that deal-making structure change. So instead of the, the streamer being a studio, maybe you start with you're the studio and they're licensing the rights for you. So they have those rights exclusively. They don't have to sell it on, but they have it for a limited period. Maybe the next stage is, well, if you do some advertising, some AVOD, we get a percentage of that as the filmmaking thing. And in success, that percentage could mean more money and so on and so forth. And I think that there's a lot of very smart uh, lawyers in our business that are looking at these types of deal structures very carefully to figure out how we can start to include them in our deals. But it does go back to what we talked about earlier, which is the consolidation of power and the increase in consolidation of power, because it all makes perfect sense. But you have to have somebody to be able to negotiate against that also feels like you have some leverage to uh, achieve the outcome that you feel is equitable. Well, I want to go back to something Gail said. It was actually the very first thing you said, Gail, and it circles back to the consolidation of power. You, you use the term activist shareholders, 
Can you expand on that and tell me how you think that impacts all of this? You know, we, we would like to think that, that many businesses are some sort of meritocracy. In other words, that the best projects, the best people rise to the top. But we're now in a marketplace where, where people are being rewarded for taking the safest uh, choice, the safest path. And we're seeing this in the strike right now. Um, the strikes are also, re regardless of what an individual who's the head of the studio may personally want, they are absolutely beholden to their shareholders. So if they don't cut staff, if they don't cut costs, if they aren't profitable, um, then an activist shareholder will boot them out, boot out the board, the, the CEO. And we're seeing that in other industries. So there is no reward for any, any kind of humane treatment of your employees and your, the unions. It is not an option. And I, and I think that's, that's really frightening um, that, uh, that we're at the point where an activist shareholder is literally rewarding the worst possible behaviors. Let's face it. I mean, you know, I think they've. I think there was a a study that was done that determined that the highest number of sociopaths is in the CEO ranks. So you you know, so that's obviously alarming. But you align that with an ethos that is really not about rewarding employees' talent. It is about consolidating power. It is about growing monopolies and essentially putting everyone out of business. Um, you know, you've certainly seen that with the gig economy. Everyone thought, wow, isn't it wonderful that we can, we can do these, you know, take these gigs for a short period of time, not realizing that they had no opportunity to join a union, that they have no collective bargaining power and no benefits. That is a truly alarming precedent that I know that shareholders, these activist shareholders, would like to see in every industry. They'd like us all to be gig workers. I, from this point forward, refuse to call it the AMPTP. It's the AMPTC um, because it is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Companies. I hate having producers as part of the name of that organization. Um, I can tell you on January 8th, 1988, sorry to date us, um, I sold my first studio pitch and the producer sitting right next to me was Gail Ann Hurt. Okay. She was not a company. She was a producer. She was the first producer uh, that, that got me into um, uh, the Writers Guild. Um, I'm not on strike against Gail. I'm not on strike against you. I'm on strike against the companies and it's because the companies made me go on strike. So from now on, on this podcast, it's the AMPTC. Exhibitors always talk about how they want more films and more independent films to balance out and give them some leverage with studio content. And it's not that they don't support them, but independent films don't make as much money as studio movies. So how they support them and how they build a growing and sustainable audience for that is a very hard matter that isn't really their core business. They're not marketing individual films. I don't think these core eight companies really belong together as an alliance. I think it's a false construct. And I think it's why we are where we are. And I, I felt from the beginning of this 
strike that the issue was really not the companies versus the writers. It was the tech companies versus the legacy media companies. I think that's actually where the fissure exists. You look at Netflix, they're the only company, AMPTC, that is just in the business of, of creating content. They don't have any other businesses. And when I hear people say, well, you guys are screwed because Netflix can do this for two years. Netflix has enough uh, content to last for two years. They can wait this out forever. My answer is, well, then why the hell are ABC, CBS, and NBC partnered with Netflix? Why would they want to go off that cliff if they can't sustain it and Netflix can't? So I would ask you, does it make sense for the AMPTC to exist? Or are we at a place where we realize that it has completely outlived its usefulness as a bargaining unit? What do you think? Hopefully, the legacy media companies will be able to bring pressure onto Netflix to step up because I'm sure your listeners, but maybe not everyone knows that the old contract favored the streamers because they were they were new at that time. They had better deals. They got better terms. And, and that is at the heart here of the strikes. And yes, is there a way to, to try to say that, you know, they are different? Yes. But I defer to wiser people than I to figure out, you know, in, in which ways it benefits the, the, you know, the workers in our business, including ourselves. I agree with the idea that they're two very different types of companies negotiating together and that they'll have different opinions. Um, while I'm frustrated that I sit here and effectively our entire business is impacted by something that we have not only no voice in, but no transparency into. We just sit and wait for something to be done. Uh, I, I'm actually extremely thankful that those legacy companies are there as a counterbalance to the technology companies. And I think that everyone will benefit from that in some way. Um, so, and, and I also don't know that there is a better solution uh, at this moment in terms of negotiating with, you know, different types of companies or thousands of different type of companies throughout the world. So as imperfect as it is, and as there are differences, uh, I, I still think this is the best alternative that we have right now. Um, and I would also take a step back, you know, it's, this is really intense. We all want this, these strikes to end immediately because we understand that there's real pressure on real people. September 1st comes and people have to pay their rent um, and they're under financial pressure. And there's always different perspectives and those perspectives grow wider when there's a lot of change happening in a short period of time. But that doesn't mean that there's villains in this, uh, in this equation. And my expectation is that even though maybe a company like Amazon, where their film and television business is a small part of their overall business, they still have invested a lot into it. Um, and they still are, they seem to feel they're still gaining a lot of value out of it. And I think that they're just trying to work to a place where they can get the best deal that suits their business, even if it's different than what Sony's, the best deal for Sony is. Um, and I would always go back to encourage the folks at these companies to think about the individuals that are really under pressure. Um, 
to just say, hey, this is really important. This is bigger than just a deal. This impacts people's lives. And those people are part of our community um, and are part of what is going to drive our business going forward. And to try and use that empathy and looking at change of perspective to find what the common ground can be. And it's, it's easy to say that, and it's harder to do it specifically. But I do think in the end, everybody genuinely needs the same outcome, even if that outcome will change in the next three to five years. And that's why these deals only go on for a certain amount of time. I read a book by Charles Feltman called The Thin Book of Trust. And it talks about what's essential for people to be able to communicate and to be able to come to a resolution and to to move forward um, in a unified way. And the first thing is care, just like Glenn's saying. All of us in this podcast realize that our friends are going to lose their homes, won't be able to pay their rent, um, you know, may not be able to feed their families. This is, these are real issues that the CEOs, you know, if we can trust some of the things we've read, um, um, don't seem to be aware of. And, um, you know, and, and the, other three, the other three things that are essential to trust are sincerity, reliability, and competence. So those are the four factors that need to be present for any negotiation to succeed. And, and I'd like to believe that we can refocus the, the uh, AMPTC on care. When you talk to the CEOs, they will say, we've never spent more on writers ever. And for them, that's true, because if you're giving X hundreds of millions of dollars to Ryan Murphy or whoever, um, it's likely true that your overall writer's budget is probably higher than it's ever been. But the strike is not about Ryan Murphy. The strike's not about J.J. Abrams. The strike is about staff writers. The strike is about executive story editors. The, the strike is about the people who are actually on a show at a streamer and driving Uber at the same time. Um, I don't think that's been made clear yet. I've seen no indication in any of the conversations that I've had that that has gotten through. When it does, then I think you can actually um, start to talk about care. I can't tell you their level of sincerity. I, I, I don't know these people. Um, I cannot speak to their level of reliability. I, again, I don't know them. Um, I can absolutely speak to their competence. They're hugely competent people. Um, and look at the companies that they've built and, the, and the, the empires that they run. But do they have that fundamental understanding of what the strike is about? I'm not sure they do. If you're going to give uh, an actor on a Netflix movie $50 million and pay everybody else on the call sheet scale and then say, look what I'm spending on my cast, well, you've got one person making a fortune and you've got everybody else starving. Yeah, I guess in the aggregate, you're spending a lot of money on the talent pool, but you're hurting a lot of people. How do we get that message across? You're doing it just now. These are some of the 
most important conversations I've heard since you started them. And, and I really think it's important. And, um, and I'd love to see more people who are impacted by the, the strike on the podcast to talk about what their lives are like, what they're enduring right now. And by the way, what it was like back when, quote unquote, it was working successfully, which of course you and Glenn and I know was not the case recently. Uh, otherwise, people wouldn't have to have side jobs. Um, and, and we're dealing right now with, with an explosion of content. So given that everyone is pulling back on the number of shows that they're making, um, we're going to see a tightening. And, uh, you know, and, and that's going to make everything that we are seeing right now even worse. Yeah, that's a great point. I would ask what the biggest challenge uh, we're having right now, the strike isn't the number one challenge. It's the contraction that's happening from all of the buyers of feature films and television. That's really the biggest challenge that we're facing. How do we adjust to that? Um, fewer shows, fewer movies. What types of shows and movies will buyers be looking for? Um, that's the biggest challenge that we face. And the strike happens to be an immense obstacle that maybe is giving us some time to think about the bigger challenge. But once the strike ends, hopefully uh, in equitable fashion and sustainable fashion, we're still then going to have to deal with the challenges that will make at least the independent film business continue to feel just as impossible as it has been throughout my career. Currently, YouTube is the number one media platform in the world. Truly, it's one of the reasons why we made the documentary is to shine a light on the fact that it does own this space in a way that very few people realize. So I, th I think your question is incredibly valid. Uh, and people are going to TikTok for the same reason. It's, it's, not as, it's not as large as YouTube. But I just had an elderly relative contact me and say that she was going to get rid of her, um, of her cable subscription and just watch everything on YouTube. I've been inside three of these negotiations between the Writers Guild and the AMPTC. Um, the ones that are really conflictual like this, they don't end in that stiff, formal counter, counter exchange. They end when a couple CEOs sit down with the Guild and say, here's what we need. And the Guild says, oh, here's what we need. And then you figure it out. Um, this is going to be exactly what you described. Gail, this is going to be about trust and it's going to require care, sincerity, reliability, and competence. My question to you is, do either of you talk to CEOs and are you nudging them in that direction or are you aware that they are getting nudged by other people in that direction? No one's asked me my opinion, but, uh, you know, I, I, was at a, I was at a summit a couple of weeks ago and, uh, and there was a contingent of us from the Producers Guild who basically said, even though you're right, it shouldn't be called the AMPTP. People who are only successful when they're able to bring sides together, the talent, the studios, above the line, below the line, are able on a daily basis to come to some sort of consensus and move things forward. Um, it, it would be great if, if our input was welcomed, and I'm, I'm not sure that it is. I've had off-the-record conversations with a couple of CEOs, some who 
are part of the negotiating committee. And my sense is, just as much as we all want this to be over, they do as well, because they are hearing from a lot of people and they do have connection to the artists and the communities of people that are creating both film and TV content that they're distributing. I don't know that they understand or they have understood, because I haven't spoken to anyone in the last week, that they understood really what the equitable solution is. And that's what scares me the most, is it's not just about negotiating, negotiating positions, it's about really understanding what that equitable solution is for all sides. Okay, last subject, and then I really will let you go. Um, Gail, in Terminator and Terminator 2, you described AI. Skynet, it's here now. How big a factor do you think this is? How big a threat do you think it is? Do you think, uh, last week on this program, we talked about ethical AI and how um, AI can actually attribute to the sources that it's stealing from. What do you think big picture going forward happens with AI? I think the important thing to remember that is often left out of the discussion is that AI is still programmed by individuals by people who want a particular outcome. They also um, are not necessarily aware, those individual programmers, of what the unintended consequences will be. And, and that's really, that's my concern. Jim and I have been warning people about this since the script was written in 1982, no one listened. Um, and now we're at the point where it's essentially going to be very difficult to put all of these dangerous possibilities back inside Pandora's box. They, they have been let loose on the world. The first thing is that the people who basically said, we're very concerned about AI, we work at these big companies, they can't stop moving forward. They can't stop the move fast and break things um, because of the competition. It's not just competition from corporations here in the US, it's China, it's Russia, it's North Korea, it's you name it, the rest of the world. Um, and, and if we can't even you know, solve this strike, I'm not sure that we're gonna be able to solve the AI conundrum and, um, and all of the you know, possible dangers that AI poses. At the risk of sounding naive, I don't spend much time really focused in thinking about AI. AI is built on historical information and the past. And what's always excited me and us at Film Nation is really about finding something that feels new and fresh and authored. And I'm convinced that we'll always be able to find that outside of any AI. I may not understand whether AI can do that at some point in the future, but I don't anticipate in the next few years that it's going to create something that would be exciting and feel fresh and new for us. So we're going to, uh, we're going to side with the artists on this one all the way through. That's literally our purpose is to find and collaborate with artists and find a way for them to bring there. And dare I say it, because it's not a business term, but these are works of art. We'd rather be with someone who's authoring something that feels different than what we've seen before. Uh, that's the most compelling thing for us. We're going to leave it there. Okay. Now we have a deeper sense of what we're facing and how we got here. It's complicated stuff, surely. Very hard. But I opened on 1936 to remind you that the Great Depression was harder. Just like getting people back into theaters after 9-11 or a pandemic was harder. 
I remember a time when AMC was going nowhere, then it made Mad Men. FX was just a fledgling company, and then it made The Shield. Trust saved those companies. Trust in great storytellers and care, sincerity, reliability, and competence. The executives that I talk to demonstrate those qualities through and through. They are people. Now the companies of the AMPTC must do so, collectively. The guilds are ready. A deal is in reach. We can all go back to work. And happy days will be here again. I want to thank my guests who were spectacular, Glenn Basner and Gail Ann Hurd. I want to thank my brilliant producers, Shane Whitaker and Hannah Baker. Please, please join us next week when our guests will be Billy Burke and Ray Bolger. This is Strike Talk. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.